Let's uh, stand in the O Master, who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. I have some nice uh, bookmarks back there for you. You didn't see them? With all the books of the Bible on it. Did we want one? There you go. Give them out to your friends. Put them on your uh, refrigerator. Put them in your five Bibles. There's more back there. Here we go. Take some of those, give them out. There you go, Norma, give them to your friends. All right. Uh, and there'll be more back. There will always have these around. So, um, a couple of announcements. Um, I know I've announced this 600 times that we're going to have this Chester, the thing at Chester Starbucks, and people keep asking me, is it starting this week? No, it's after Easter, not Easter week, but the week after, because Easter week, I'm not working. Because it's Easter week. So, I won't be here. You can come try to find me. Um, but uh, you can still call me with Bible questions. I'm sure my wife will appreciate that. My wife's here, my baby, and my sister-in-law's. Here's the deal. We're going to advertise this in the McLean Connection, but nothing, uh, I mean, I'll get maybe three people from that with all the money we spend. And so it really helps if it's handed out by you guys and by me and put it at restaurants and put it on the, you know, everywhere. Put it on people's cars, you know, everywhere. So I'm going to ask you guys to do that, to take five or ten copies and set them. I don't care where you set them. Walk into a restaurant, set them at the front thing, leave them there till they throw them away. Maybe somebody takes one. All right? So, there it is. Um, should I try to hand them out now? Yeah, I'll take about five. All right. You can take ten, hand out two to each person. <laughs> All right. Who else? Don't throw them away, though, because they do cost some church money. All right, all right, you can take some more. Here we go. Come on, guys. Here's the thing is that why not? You know, what's it going to hurt? The person's going to say no. Okay. You know, you might know a store or you might own a store, but you might know somebody that owns a store. You can post it on their window. Am I giving you guys too many? If I'm giving you too many, just leave them here and then we'll. All right. Put them at your school. Go to Christendom, put them there. Updates up. <laughs> Professor Christendom. Alright, yes, more. Here we go, alright, good. And there's more back there, and I'll keep printing more, and let's keep putting them out. And if we do that from here, you know, there's like 
I don't know, we've been do, getting between 50 and 70 people, so that's like the 70 that went out, you know, and we'll just paper all of McLean. And everywhere you go, you'll see McLean Bible Study, McLean Bible Church. Well, oh, wow. You know, what's this going on? We didn't know we were having a Bible study, and I'd say, well, you know, okay, anyways. Um, so, that's that. Uh, Mon is the lady that sits in the back and helps me out so much. She um, has had problems with her neck and had to have surgery on six vertebrae because it was swelling. And I, she went in two weeks ago. They shaved her head, all this, put the marks there, gave her the, put her out, and she woke up. They didn't do the surgery because her heart rate started to go down. So she spent all day, whatever, there, and then finally they sent her home at the end of the day after doing a bunch of tests. Well, so today was her second, and by the way, her husband passed away last year, and um, so she's very, you know, she's just a wonderful lady, and, and uh, but anyways, her surgery was scheduled on the day that he had died. Oh, God. Oh. So anyways, but she didn't have the surgery. So then it was scheduled again for today, so she went in this morning, I got a phone call this afternoon from her, and she says, this is mine. I'm okay, but they didn't do surgery on me again. They've done the same thing. All the oh, oh, So anyways, pray for her. Okay, and uh, maybe she won't need it. Maybe she won't need it. And uh, yes, hopefully she won't need it. And if she does, then it all goes well. Okay? She's a, or she, well, she won't be a George Washington. I don't know where she's at. Anyways, I don't know what the rest of the details. I tried calling her, but I couldn't call her. The third announcement. <laughs> Sorry, Jennifer. Jennifer gives me a hard time because I never start on time. I have a big old canker sore. But he denies that he never starts on time. This is kind of disgusting. I have a big old uh, canker sore on my tongue, like right where your tooth hits it. And I mean, I was dying this morning. I thought I wasn't going to be able to teach, right? Yes. Anyways, they made this whole new gel thing that you put on it and it like gels over the spot. Anyways, so I got one in my mouth. It makes me like uh, a lot of saliva be going. So I'm He designed our home for us in the beginning. He wants us to have that home. He doesn't want us to be exiled from it. And so it's not like he's just going to change his whole plan. All right, well, forget that one didn't work, so let me try a different one. God's not like that. Okay, he made our home beautiful for us. He loves us, and that's what he wants us to have. What are some of those images of our home, of the Garden of Eden that we talked about last time? Real quick. Mountain. Mountain, why mountain? Gold. It's the river. It's a river, yeah. Gold, what else? Vidalium, onyx. Look at that, huh? You guys are put shapes. Vidalium and onyx stone, right? These jewels. The, the, the father said, and Jew said, that the, that the Garden of Eden was on the ground was just covered in jewels. They walked upon jewels. You can imagine. And God wants to make something wonderful for man. What is it there? Okay. So what else? Man, a man and a woman. What kind of characteristics does man have? What kind of man is he? Yeah, and 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 God, who is God? The Creator, right? But God plants the Garden of Eden. So what's man? A gardener. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else? 
snake, all right. A gate. A gate. Who's at the gate? The cherubim with the flaming sword. What else? The trees. The trees. What kind of fruit tree do we know is in the garden? Don't know. A big tree. Right. What else? There's all sorts of things. All right, fine. That's good. Um, one more thing we need to deal with is the location of the Garden of Eden. Because when we find out the location, we're going to be well on our way. Okay? I'm going to present to you a theory, a possibility that was um, that was common among the Jews, the Jewish perspective, and the early church. And it's... Um, well, let's just open up to Genesis chapter 3. While you're doing that, I did, there was one other announcement, and that is I haven't given you guys any flyers for what we're doing after Easter, Easter because I'm waiting on Dr. O'Donnell to say, yes, indeed, he's coming on this date. And based upon that, I got skipped by everything else because he's talking about something that I can't just go on from without it being done first. So that's what's going on. I will have, I promise, the flyers for you next week. Chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Sheila? Uh Chapter 3, 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in which direction was man most likely exiled? East. Yeah, because at the east side of the garden, the guardians are waiting, right? So he's, he's sent in that direction and he puts the guardians on the edge of the, of the garden in that direction. Okay. Chapter 4, verse... Uh, 15. Sheila just didn't be our nice. You read the story of Cain. Cain kills his brother. He says, Oh, but I'm going to get killed. And God says, Okay, go ahead. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so again, east of Eden, you get that theme of so you get that theme of going east, and again, so you got it twice. This this idea that the east is the place of sin and death. Forget the whole thing about facing east for prayer that I've talked to you guys about in the past. For right now, there's a reason. But um, apparently, something's going on. The man keeps being exiled further and further east. Chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. And before you start reading it, remind me, somebody that was in our last study on the salvation history thing, when the, the people uh, built the Tower of Babel, what were they attempting to do? Make a name for yourselves. Yeah, to make a name for yourselves. In biblical language, what does that mean? I mean, kind of demon today. 
Yeah, to build up your own your own thing, right? And in light of the whole Shem, Ham, and Japheth thing with Noah, these are the descendants of Ham. What was going on in the story? The sense of Canaan. What was going on in the story? With Noah and his sons. You remember the whole battle between having to usurp the, the rightful authority of Shem? Right? Remember the, the name Shem? I'm sorry, guys, if you weren't in that study, but you remember the name Shem means what? Name. Name. Okay, so his brother, so Shem is going to receive the name. He is the one who receives the name. And his brother tries to usurp that through his evil actions. And so, like father, like son, here his descendants do the same thing in the Tower of Babel, and they try to make a name for themselves. So, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Sheila. Now the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay, so you say, well, they're sinful people. Wouldn't they go further east? Yeah, but they're not only sinful people. They're people who try to usurp the rightful authority or usurp the throne. So... If this exile from God keeps going in the direction of peace, and also these people who are usurpers who are trying to make a name for themselves, all of a sudden they turn around and head back in the other direction. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes? No. It doesn't make sense. Okay. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, okay, we'll just go through real quick. Heading east, direction of sin, exile from God. Okay, as we sin, we go further and further east. But now we get the people in the story of Babel who are like steeped in sin. And now they want to turn around and take back what they've lost and make a name for themselves. And if you're going to make a name for yourself, you're going to build up a kingdom, they're going to turn around and go back in the opposite direction, taking what is not rightfully theirs. What is rightfully theirs is a further exile because they're sinners. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you get in chapter 11, verse 1, now the old polar than one language, and the, and men migrated from the east. And who are these men? These are men who are usurping the throne. They're turning around and taking back what is not theirs. Okay. So fine. Who's the next major figure we get in the story? Abraham. Abraham. Did anyone take a map as you came in? I had maps there. Okay. If you don't have a map, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, I'm handing them out like 600 times. So, where is Abraham called from? Yeah, but in the Bible, Norma, where is Ur? Where is that in the Bible? Where is it in our Bible? No, in your Bible. Chapter and verse. Anybody? 28. Good. Chapter 11, verse 28. Read that for us, Annie. Died before his father Terah in, in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, and what happens to Abraham? <laughs> Abraham is called by God. Okay, and God says, Walk with me, I will restore my covenant in you. And he calls him forth from this land to a new land. He gives him the promised land. Okay? I'm just generally those chapters. Okay? He's going to give him a new land. A place where he can dwell again in covenant with God. Okay? If he's going to come back into covenant with God, is he going to go east? 
No. No. Which way is he going to go? West. Look at your map. Look at your map. Find Ur. Now, I don't have my map in front of me. Okay, if you find Babylonia, I've underlined Ur. It's a little tiny, it's a little tiny thing there. If you find a big Arabia, go further east and just north a little bit. You see it there? Anybody lost yet? I don't want you to get lost here, it's important. Don't get lost in a map. Alright, take it easy, take it easy. We're all there. If you're not there, don't worry about it. If you are there, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. I'm not going to lose you. Right here. Alright, we're good to go. Everybody, we need a geography lesson. We know we need is we need a huge map, and that way I have to have you. Anybody want to donate one of those big school maps that has like 15 different things, but it's all Old Testament? That'd be very cool. Okay, now look. Hold on. Find her. Head directly west. Straight line west. What do you hit? I've done this some, with some of you before, haven't I? Yes. If you direct, go directly west in the direction of covenant union with God, you hit Jerusalem. Okay? So far in the Bible, our only directions have been sin. East, east, east. And you hit Ur. In what area? What, what people are there? The Babylonians. And Abraham is called out of that place of exile back into union with God. And where we should hit the Garden of Eden, we hit Jerusalem. Mm. The Jews believed Jerusalem was the location of the Garden of Eden by tradition. Okay? Abraham goes back into that land. And what major event happens? Yeah, we'll get to Melchizedek in a second. But after Melchizedek, what great event? Famine. Sacrifice of his son. Chapter 22. Go to chapter 22. My tongue is all right. I took four apples before we started. Where's Haran? Haran is north. If you go, you follow that little line with an arrow, and you'll hit Haran. See that little arrow that goes north, northwest. Chapter 22. Dave. Dave doesn't have his Bible. <laughs> Chapter 22, verse 1. Go. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer, offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. All right. Moriah. Okay. He goes up to Mount Moriah. Where is Moriah? Don't tell me if you know. Where is Moriah? The answer is found in verse 7 and 8. Go ahead, Dave. Verse 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Okay, God will provide himself the, the lamb for the burnt offering. Look at verse 14, Dave. Give us the reading. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay. The word in Hebrew for provide is yira, something of that sort. Yira. I don't speak Hebrew, but there it is. All right? Yira. All right, you're saying, well, that's nice. What's more? Um, what is more? <laughs> Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Sorry, I do have notes in front of me. I don't look at it. I'm getting confused. Chapter 3, verse 1. Second, what did I say? 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Second Chronicles. Chapter 2. Where is 2 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles comes just after the Pentateuch, right? his son. He ascended to the Mount of Jerusalem. Why is it called Jerusalem instead of Moriah? I'll tell you. Turn back to chapter uh, 14, I think, of Genesis. Yeah, chapter 14. We're almost done with this craziness. Chapter 14, verse 17. Annie, give it to us. When Abram returned from his victory over Chaldolomar and the kings who were all, and the kings who were allied with him, the king of Sodom went out to greet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and being a priest of God most high, he blessed Abram with these words. Blessed be Abram by God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your foes into your hands. Okay, you remember how important Melchizedek is for us in our genealogy. He's king of where? Salem. Salem. Where's Salem? <laughs> Turn to Psalms 76. Psalm 76. Come on! Psalm 76! Psalm 76. And you can't find the Psalms without problems. It's in the middle of your Bible. You'll get there. Don't worry. You're going to get used to it. The Psalms are quite big, so you'll get the hang of it. Don't start reading without everybody else. It's all right to scan. You'll find them eventually. 
Psalm 76. Jordan, want to give that to us? 76.1. In Judah, God is known, and his name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. What's the abode of God? The house of God. The temple. The temple's built where? Jerusalem. But it says his temple, his abode is on Salem. Salem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Why is it called that? Salem is the old name for it. Okay? Another name for it is Moriah. In fact, it's said to be the land of Moriah. And then in the middle of the land of Moriah is the Mount of Salem. Okay? Why is it called Jerusalem? Because Abraham renames it. The place where God will provide. And because they knew the old name too, they tacked them both together. Jerusalem. Okay, Salem is um, means uh, peace. Okay, so where God will provide His peace. You're thinking He's not providing His peace there. There's a reason why. Where do we get the name Mount Sinai? Mount Zion. Zion. I mean, uh, I don't know the etymology, the background to that, except Zion is one of the hills within Jerusalem. There's a, has anybody been to Jerusalem here? Am I right that it's one of the hills in Jerusalem? Yeah. And Zion was known that the remnant of the people uh, at, the ta- at the time of the Babylonian exile is the poor people that were left to live there went and dwelt on Zion. So it's this place of salvation. Okay? But anyways, you could say Zion, Jerusalem, interchangeably. That's fine. Okay? Fine. N.T. Wright, great biblical scholar, at his book there, he says... The prophets who look forward to the restoration of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple see in this event the refounding of the Garden of Eden. In literature which urged the exiled people to look forward to the coming age when all would be restored, the future glory of the land is described in terms borrowed from paradise imagery. The Jews had this idea that Jerusalem was the place of salvation It was the place of the Garden of Eden. Literally the place of the Garden of Eden. And when they came back into that place, and everything was going to be okay, when they were living a holy life, and God came and restored His covenant with them, that the Garden of Eden would be restored. And they would live like Adam before the fall, in union with God, and they would live forever, enjoying the fruits of paradise and all of the pleasures of paradise. Okay? I'll read you from a Jewish midrash, which is basically a, a um, what do you want to call it, a, a tradition, a text of the tradition of the perspective of the people. Okay. Um, well, before I read it for you, I have to ask you a question. Today, in the middle of Jerusalem, is a building. It's not a Christian building, right? What is it? It's a Muslim mosque, right? Actually, it's not a technically a mosque; it's a shrine, okay? Because they, the the uh, Muslims believe that it was on that place that Muhammad was taken up and had his vision or whatever. I don't know too much about it, okay? That building has a name. What's it called? Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock. You've been to Jerusalem. 
Did you go in? I did. You did? I didn't think we could. Yes. You can. Did you see the rock? Yes. yes. All right, I'm about to, to freak you out here. Because that rock is very important to us. Is it okay? It's a rock that was very important to the Jews. Okay? It was a central place of Jerusalem. And in that central place of Jerusalem, all the great things of salvation and history took place. I'll read you the tradition on it. It is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. It was upon this rock that Noah's ark came to rest. It is upon this rock that Solomon built his temple. It is upon this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is upon this rock, which is the capstone of the gates. I'm sorry, it is this rock, which is the capstone of the gates of Hades. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called a spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth, from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon this stone is the house of the Lord. Okay? How did they get it? The the Uh, They stole it. We're being recorded. They stole it. (laughs) (laughs) How does that go along with Noah and the rest on Mount Ararat? What's that? How does that jab with Noah and the ark coming on Mount Ararat? Yeah, there's two traditions that it landed on Mount Ararat, as we see in Scripture. Also, another mountain, Mount. Sinai. Starts with a Q. I can't, I don't know. I was just reading on last night. But anyways, um, first of all, we don't know where all these places were. Okay, We might even have modern names. We're going to look at in a minute. Even modern names for some of these things, which parallel. But we don't really know where they were at. First of all, it was all prior to the flood. Okay, And these names were tacked on from later things that they knew. Okay, names were tacked onto it. So where these things took place, we don't really know. For us, the most important thing is a Jewish perspective. Okay? That it was this rock which was the central location of salvation throughout the Old Testament. And it remains that in the New Testament. We're going to look at that next time. Okay? I'll read you it one more time so it gets stuck in your head some of the phrases that are used because they're important to us. It is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was created, that Solomon built his temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock, which is the capstone of the gates of Hades. Like a man sitting in place a central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Is Saint Peter named... His name's been rock too. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Excuse me. Is this rock a real rock or is it an abstract? Ah, he looked at it. It's a real rock. rock. How big is it? Uh, about as big as this room. Okay, so it's this huge, this huge surface of a rock which comes out of the earth, right? And it's upon that rock that Solomon chose to build the temple, the house of God. It's a central rock for the Jews. The capstone to the gates of Hades is from that rock that the prayers go up to heaven and the graces of God descend to the earth. Okay? 
What's that? Just for the Jews. We're going to get to that. Okay. Yes. Who wrote that? It's a Jewish midrash. They don't know who wrote these. I mean, there were old traditions that were written down, uh, mostly exegetical texts on the scriptures. But they're very, very, very old? Yes, yeah, probably written sometime. Most of the midrash is written between the uh, return from Babylon and the New Testament, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. How can you put a building on the block? It's there now. Now, our next event we have to look at, we got to do this fast because we got to get to a lot of stuff today, and that is, um, although I am going to go over time, <laughs> the next text I want to look at real quick is Exodus, because it's going to lead us to what we really need to talk about today at the end. Okay, so turn to Exodus chapter 10. It's our next major event in salvation history. We dealt with the flood. We talked about Abraham a little bit, not we could go more about him. But let's look at that next major thing, and that is the calling out of the holy people out of the promised land, or out of Egypt, I'm sorry. What did I say? Exodus chapter 10. Verse. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did they rise from their place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they dwelt. Now, what do you think he means by a darkness to be felt? What do you think? It's very dark. Yeah. If you get a chance, chance, read Wisdom, the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 17. We're not going to look at it right now. But it describes what it was like for those people. Can you imagine? You know, when when there's no light, like you're inside a room where like no light, not just outside, but nothing gets in. You can't see anything, right? It's funny because the footnote in my Bible says darkness. At times, a storm from the south called the Kimson blackens the sky with sand from the Sahara. The dust in the air is so thick, darkness can, in sense, be felt. Yes. All right. That's, yeah. Oftentimes, I mean, that's probably a good point. God will use nature, but oftentimes some of these biblical scholars think it's not possible for a miracle to take place, and so they try to find a natural reason for every single thing. Like, God couldn't actually have this happen. But but it might be that God uses nature in this way at this time. But anyways, darkness. You can't see anything for three days. And Wisdom chapter 17 describes what it was like. And you know, when all of a sudden, like, you hear, imagine total darkness and a cat moves. It freaks you out, right? Even outside in darkness at night, something moves and you're startled by it. For three days, they sat and it says that it was, it was as though the demons were around them. He has every noise, everything, whether it was a pleasant noise of a bird, no matter what it was, they freaked out. Okay? And they were hiding in, in absolute, absolute whatever, hiding in their houses. They couldn't see each other. They didn't know where anything was. For three days. And you imagine it happening like that came upon them. Okay, wherever they were, they were lost. But it, for the people of Israel, there was light. 
Okay, remember back in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that separation between the light and darkness. And that was one of our images we brought forth, okay, that we were talking about. Um, turn to uh, chapter 13, verse 17. Dave, go ahead. When Pharaoh left, let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Thus the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people round by the way of the wilderness through the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went out, went out, out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had solemnly swore the people of Israel, saying, God will visit you, then you must carry my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sakoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may, might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay, so what's going on? They have shade from the sun during the day. They can see, it's daytime, but they have shade underneath the cloud. And at night, they have the light to guide them. Okay? But for Egypt, how was it? St. Ephraim says... The angel took the pillar of cloud. Actually, we have to look at one more thing. Um, look at 14. Hold on. Look at 14, verse 10. Then Pharaoh drew near, and so on, and the, and the people freaked out. And then um, in verse uh, 19. Uh, then the angel of the Lord, who went before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Okay, And there was a cloud and darkness, and night passed without one coming near the other. St. Ephraim says, The angel took the pillar of cloud that was in front of them and placed it behind the camps of the Egyptians and the Hebrews. The cloud overshadowed the people in the daytime, but when the angel placed it between the camps at night, it produced darkness over the Egyptians, like the darkness which was over them in the three days and three nights. But for the children of Israel there was light on account of the pillar of fire. So he creates this... Uh, um, the situation where Egypt ends up in absolute darkness and Israel being called by God ends up in absolute in, in total light. Okay, recalling for us again that imagery of creation on the first day. Okay, you might be saying, okay, whatever, there's light and darkness. Well, let's go a little bit further. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Go ahead, Dave. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Wind in Hebrew is what? That's good. And it can be translated as wind or? Spirit. Spirit or what? Breath. And in fact, look at chapter 15, verse 8. When Moses sings his hymn, he says, At the blast of thy nostrils the waters piled up. Okay, you can see how that word then can be used in two ways, or three ways. Okay? The Spirit of God came down upon the waters and parted the waters and dry land came forth. Like when? Creation. Like a creation. When else? At the flood. Okay? So we get light and darkness and then we get the wind, the Spirit of God hovering over the abyss and the waters part and dry land comes forth. 
and Moses and Israel cross safely upon that dry ground. But what happens? Pharaoh enters into that abyss. You know, imagine, I said, you know, I, I read some ridiculous commentaries on, you know, that, oh, well, there was a, a shallow place for them to cross. Okay? Um, a, a, commentary, a commentator that I, that I do trust was talking about where it must have been that they passed using biblical um, indicators and saying that the sea was extremely deep there. And the water piled up on both sides. And you can imagine, I don't know how high, but I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet, maybe more. Could you imagine walking down with those waters just like that on, around you and the Spirit of God pushing that water out? I mean, first of all, faith to walk through that. Okay? And then Pharaoh and the Egyptians coming into that, those waters just coming and crashing down upon them. I'll quote my brother. <laughs> like a new creation, the waters were divided and Israel walked on dry land, but the Egyptians followed Israel into the midst of the sea. And upon Israel's safe arrival on the opposite side, the waters returned to cover the land. In a deep creation, the host of Egypt, like the wicked of the flood, were drowned in the sea. And like the flood waters, which both killed the wicked and preserved the righteous, the waters of the sea destroyed the Egyptians and set Israel free. As a culmination of this recreation, Israel makes its way to what mountain? To Mount Sinai. Okay. Turn to Exodus chapter 24. Oftentimes, before you read that, oftentimes we look at, it, at Sinai as this kind of midway point between the promised land and kind of stopping resting place. For Israel, it was not that at all. It was a culmination of their exodus out of Egypt. And it was Sinai which gave them the power and the strength to then to go forth and to take the Holy Land. Okay? But Sinai was definitely a pinnacle of their journey. In fact, uh, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, let us go, we're going to leave. He says, let us go to worship God. That was the plan in the beginning. We're going to go to the mountain to worship God. Okay? So they come to that mountain in chapter 24, uh, verse... Well, all of chapter 24, you get the covenant, the restoration of the covenant with Israel. And verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, mm -hmm. like the very heavens of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me, up to me on the mountain, and wait there, and I will give you the, ta uh, the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his servant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Tarry here for us until we come to you again. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a cause, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Okay? So Israel goes through this recreation, and Moses makes his way up the mountain. And six days, he reaches the pinnacle of the mountain. And on the seventh day, the day of covenant, the day of rest, when man and God are to commune, 
when, when God is to speak with man and man is to be transformed into his image, Moses beholds God. And what happens to Moses? He's transformed, right? Transformed into the image of God. Up on that mountain, what does he see? What does he see? He sees God, but he's shown something. And what's that? Well, hold on. We're getting there. Chapter 25, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me an offering from every man whose heart makes willing, um, you shall receive the offering from me. And so he receives what? Bronze and all these beautiful things, ram skins, goes, acacia wood, oil, all these things. In verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst according to all I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture. So you shall make it. We get the idea, you know, from the Ten Commandments in the movie that Moses just received the, the, the law, but he, he did. He received much more than that. He received a full revelation. As who, what's, I always forget who, what saint it was that said it. Um, maybe you know Dave. Um, uh, what does he not see? Who sees him? Who sees all? No? All right. What does he not see? What do I not see if I see him who sees all? What do I not see if I see God? Because if I see God, I see everything. Because everything is within God. He is the creator of all. And so Moses sees God, and what doesn't he see? Right? So what is he shown on that mountain? He speaks of this pattern. In fact, in chapter 25, verse 40. Chapter 25, 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So he sees on the mountains a pattern. What is this pattern he sees? And he comes down and he builds the tabernacle. It'd be nice to know what he saw, wouldn't it? All right, well, guess what? Today's your lucky day. <laughs> Turn to the book of Hebrews. Yes, the New Testament. Okay. Hebrews, if you go to the book of Revelation, all the way to the end, you'll work your way back just a few few little books there, you're going to find it. Chapter 8. Don't start reading, though. Hebrews chapter 8. You guys get too reliant on those stupid little bookmarks. You can thank Jennifer for the, she was the impetus to have them done. My brother had them, and then she said, why don't you do this? And I said, well, you know, so she wanted to find them. Okay, chapter 8. Chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. You there? Yeah. Dave, come on, quick reading. Go, go, go. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary of the true tent, which is set up not by man but by the Lord. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if, we, we, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But as it is... So, what is that pattern? Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. 
From when Moses was on the mountain, he saw a pattern. And the pattern he saw was the heavenly sanctuary. And I can pretty much guarantee you that God didn't just hold up a poster. He saw the throne of God. And when he saw the throne of God, God said, build this on earth. Because I'm planning on dwelling with you on earth. And my throne is going to stay with me, and you're going to come and dwell in my throne. Like Adam before the fall. Okay? Moses goes up that mountain, and on the seventh day he sees God, and he comes down to the mountain, and he not only has within the Ten Commandments, what else does he have? He's got the pattern. What else does he do? He goes down and writes down everything that was revealed to him. And by tradition, what did he write down? Not just the laws. He wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote the story of creation. And on those, the seventh day in the book of creation, God appeared to man. And man was to be joined with him. Okay? So Moses saw God. And, and, and Adam and you saw that. Because they said, no, they seen God. That's true. You have to wait till the book of John for that. We're going to get to John after Easter. That's a good point, though. No one's seen God, right? All right. So you see, Moses is able to see in to the throne of God. And that throne, he comes down and builds it upon the earth. So let's go ahead and look at what that throne looked like on earth. And then we're going to find out what God's throne in heaven looks like. Okay? First of all, Numbers chapter 11. We have to go fast. Numbers 11. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Paper stores that explode. Somebody's going to be listening to this on the internet. Oh, that's <laughs> First of all, when Israel woke up in the morning and camped around the tent, what did they find on the ground? The manna. Chapter 11, verse 7. Verse 7. Go ahead. Dave. Now the manna was like coriander seed. Coriander. He's not a cook. <laughs> and its appearance like that of Bedellium. 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 The people went about. Hold on. Wait a minute. The ground is covered in, a, in stuff that looks like Bedellium. What? Who cares about that? Why do I care about that? That is one of the stones of the Garden of Eden. On the ground, they walked upon stones of Bedellium. So when God comes and dwells on earth, the ground gets covered in stuff that looks like Bedellium. You're right, it's not. We're getting there. We're only looking at images and we're building. Because as we head towards the New Testament, God reveals himself further and further to man. And we're only in the book of Exodus. This is going to get fun, okay? Because we're only starting out here. All right. Exodus 39. You remember these books are all intertwined. Remember that? They're not written like one succession like the, like the New York Times is. All right. Exodus 39. 
This is a description of the of the garment that the priest is supposed to wear when he enters into the tent, into the abode of God. Go ahead, Dave. Verse 1. Chapter, uh, verse uh, 6. And the onyx stones were prepared, and enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. Okay. So we got the delium. We have onyx. Why do I care about onyx? One of the four jewels in the Garden of Eden. What's next in that story? One of the three jewels. What, the four, three, I don't know. Gold. Again, one of the precious metals or stones, whatever you want to call it, in the Garden of Eden. And it's hanging, literally hanging upon the, the priest as he walks in. The man, as he walks into the throne of God, draped upon him are stones which remind him of paradise. They know the Genesis story by heart. I can guarantee you that. Not like us where we're just discovering it, you know. What else? Chapter 39, verse 25. Go ahead, Dave. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates upon the skirts of the robes of the, the robe around the bell. Between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the bell upon the skirts of the robe for ministry, as the Lord had commanded. So hanging off the robe of the priest are pieces of fruit. Has anybody ever seen a pomegranate? I went shopping today trying to find a pomegranate. Virginia, I mean, California, you pomegranates like crazy. When you cut a pomegranate in half, what's inside of it? Seeds. How many? Five. Yeah, jammed with seeds. Seeds are the sign of fruitfulness or fertility, whatever. When you break open all those seeds and they spill forth, life comes about. Okay? Hanging off the robe of the priest is, a, is pieces of fruit, if you will, to remind him of something. Whatever he's supposed to remind him of. I got a theory on that. Okay? <laughs> Chapter 25. Exodus 25. <laughs> Verse 16. Go ahead, Dave. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. <clears throat> okay. So God says, build this box, and inside the box, put all of those things that are closely associated with me. Okay? And then over the lid to that box, with big wings hanging over the lid, so that anyone that's got to go in there has got to go past them. What does he put? Angels. Like the tabernacle. Guarding the way. Before the tabernacle. What? Like what? The cherubim. Guarding the way in. You guys are thinking, you're nuts. Hold on, we're going further. 
Scott Hahn says the account of creation teaches the most fundamental truth about the world, that it was formed to be a holy place for God's indwelling presence and man's priestly worship and sacrifice. In other words, God wants us to view the world as a macro temple. The ancient Jewish outlook is reflected in select biblical texts. When Moses erected the tabernacle at Sinai, for instance, several parallels show how, <coughs> show how the shrine was designed and built as a microcosm to commemorate and reenact creation. When God instructed Moses about the tabernacle, he spoke directly ten times. The Lord said to Moses, and in Genesis 1, God spoke the creative words ten times, let there be. Also, the first six days of creation bear a striking resemblance to the building and blessing of the tabernacle. We're not going to go through it. We don't have time. If you want, I can give you the ch chapters and verses later. There's all these parallels in the text between the building of, uh, of the tent and the creation story. For good reason. Because, God, because Moses went up and saw God, the creator, on the seventh day. Okay? And then from that seventh day, all of creation is revealed to him. And he comes down on earth and rebuilds it. Okay? St. Ephraim says, The symbol of paradise was depicted by Moses, who made the sanctuary. And St. Paul said, The symbol of what was depicted by Moses? It was a, yeah, it was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. <laughs> St. Ephraim says it was a copy of paradise. The same thing. It's the same thing. Because where God dwells, paradise is restored. Can you guys, can we go, we started kind of, would you guys mind if we went till, till 45 there? Is that okay? Yes. yes? I'm sorry. If you're bored, you can leave. <laughs> The building of the tent, however, was only temporary because it looked forward to what? Yeah, the building of the temple. The, um, the tent was built for moving. The temple was built for permanence. Okay? They were both the house of God. But before the temple was built, Israel entered the promised land. That land that they believed by tradition to be the place of the Garden of Eden. So let's take a look at that. Numbers chapter 13. Israel makes its way from Sinai and makes its way to the Holy Land. Numbers 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You remember the story. Moses uh, picks spies to go out and check out the land, right? The heads of the families. Go out and check out the land. See what it's like. Okay? Moses, verse, I'm sorry, verse 17, chapter 13, verse 17, Moses said to them to spy out the land of Canaan. Okay? Um, verse 20, and whether the land is rich or poor, whether it's wood or not, you know, you give us an account of it. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time of the season was the season of the first ripe grapes. Okay? So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, and so on. You can skip all those names. It's okay. Verse 23. Go ahead, Dave. Verse 23. And they came to the valley of Eshbal, 
and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They brought also pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshbal because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, and came to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Aran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Okay, and so on. You know what happens, right? They get weak and they don't go in. Does anything strike you funny about that description of the land? About what they got in the land? What did they get? Figs, pomegranates, grapes, and grapes. What else is funny about that text? Yeah. What's that? Big grapes. Yeah, the big grapes. Two men, one pole. Can you imagine what that would look? Dave, stand up. I mean, these guys, look, I'm nothing. Can you imagine? These guys just crossed the desert. They were slaves. No, stand up. These are big guys. You know, they weren't like they were like, like, you know, like me. Okay? Two men, a pole, and one cluster of grapes. Okay? of that land as they're, as they're journeying towards it. And if you want to just close your eyes and listen to this description, because it is absolutely beautiful. Okay, Dave, go ahead. Which verse? Verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Okay. So, first of all, absolute abundance of everything. Milk and honey flowing down the valleys. Okay? Bread without scarcity. What else? What was the last thing that was said there? Uh, the stones are yeah. iron. Yeah. They, you dig into the ground, and what do they find? Copper. They find copper and iron and all these, what we might call precious metals. Or semi-precious metals, at least. Okay? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing land, to say the least. But they get weak. They don't go in, right? Finally, 40 years later, they do. So let's look. Chapter 5 of Joshua. 
one of my favorite. If you guys remember, we were just going around this text last series, and I said, I cannot believe we're skipping this stuff, because this is what we were skipping. No, we're going to get it this time, finally. Chapter 5, Joshua 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening in the plains of Jericho. And on the morrow, after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased on the morrow. You see, the manna was a preparation for the fruit of the promised land. Okay? When they ate the produce of the land, the people of Israel had manna no more, but ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, remember they crossed the Jordan River and right at Jericho, okay? was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off your shoes for the earth from your feet, the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. A commander of the army of the Lord with a sword in his hand. A cherub with a flaming sword guarding the way in. A land which has fruit the size. I mean, I don't know what those grapes looked like, but like the size of watermelons. Okay? Things are not normal. And they go in and they take that land by force. We can do this in five minutes. The culmination of their entrance into the promised land. Just like the culmination of the tent was the promised land, their culmination of the entrance into the promised land was the building of the temple by Solomon. Okay? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the covenant made with salt with David. Okay? Chapter 7. Verse 12. This is God speaking to David, King David. Chapter 7, verse 12. When your when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall be. He shall be a house. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When's the last time we heard of a son of God in the Bible? Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. We looked at Genesis chapter 5, and that image and likeness in biblical terms refers to sonship. So finally, we have this figure who comes, who's to be a son of God, like Adam before the fall, and he will build the house of God, the throne of God. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. Six. Oh, I gave you my notes. 
And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Like who? Like God. Seven days in building his house. Turn a couple pages to chapter 8, verse 65. Chapter 8, verse 65. First so, Kings chapter 8, verse 65. So Solomon held the feast. This was the feast of the dedication of the house of the Lord. So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all of Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord of before the Lord our God seven days. Okay? And in fact, he dedicated the temple on the seventh month. Okay. Turn to First Kings chapter six. You're already there, aren't you? I'm the only the dumb one to close my Bible. <laughs> chapter six, verse twenty-three. Go ahead, Dave. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits of the, the length of the other wing of the cherub. Okay, so in the midst of the sanctuary, he builds two 15-foot golden angels for the priest to see as he enters in. And underneath, he has to literally go underneath those wings to get to the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God will speak with his people. Okay. We didn't look at it back in Exodus, but it was upon that ark, from the midst of that plate, we'll look at it again, that God promised that he would communicate with his people. Okay? Chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 10. Go ahead, Dave. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of 8 and 10 cubits. And above were costly stones, hewn according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of hewn stone around about. Okay, so the, literally the base of the temple was built out of precious stones, like the foundation or the ground of the Garden of Eden. Okay? What is a cubit? A cubit is, I think, a foot and a half. I think. Um, I told somebody three feet like a couple weeks ago, and I think I was wrong about that. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 20. Go ahead, Dave. The capitals were... Oh, hold on, I'll go to verse 15. They cast two pillars of bronze. Eight, 18 cubits was the height of one pillar and a line of 12 cubits measuring, measured in circumference. Okay, verse 17. Then he made two nets of checkered wood work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals upon the tops of the pillars. A net for the one capital and a net for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rolls round about upon the one network to cover the capital that was upon the top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were upon the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits, 
The capitals were upon the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the network. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows round the bell. And okay. so, so hanging off the pillars, these pillars that come up and hanging off the pillars, 200 pieces of golden fruit. What's that look like to you? Fruit tree. Fruit tree. Fruit tree. Yeah. Okay. What was the capital we're talking about? The capital is the top of the of the post, and it was all lily work, okay. showing parts of flowers coming out and then fruit hanging off of it. Okay. Um, what else do we need to look at? Um, uh, chapter six, verse twenty-three. Actually, let's go to verse 16. Verse 16. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with, with boards of cedar from the floor to the rafters. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. And the house that is in the nave in the front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Verse 35. Or no, verse 29. Is this chapter 7? Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 29. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Under, there, was a, there was a huge thing of water, and underneath it were dangling from it gourds. Okay? He was building a golden garden. For the Jews, gold was a symbol of divinity. The most important point is in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. Go ahead, Dave. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house which you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my ordinance, ordinances and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people of Israel. Okay. That God dwells there. It is his house. And where God dwells suddenly appears a golden garden. Okay? St. Ephraim in his hymns on paradise says, Accompanied by the knowledge which was hidden in the ephod, the ephod was a piece he wore on his chest, the priest entered the sanctuary, a type of paradise, and he tasted of the tree through the symbol of the revelation given to him. Remember, in the inner sanctuary, Adam was to eat from the tree of life and live forever, to communicate with God. Isaac of Nineveh says the same applied to the plate on the top of the ark from which the priest would learn from God whatever was necessary by revelation once a year. When the high priest entered at the solemn moment of prayer, while all the tribes of Israel were gathered and standing in awe and trembling in the outer court in prayer, the high priest entered the inner sanctuary. And while he lay prostrate on his face, 